Long live the Queen. I have in sincerity pledged myself to your service. Perhaps you could just give us an idea of what the last year has been like. Um... Sir, have you, broke, have you spoken to your brother since the interview? <laughs> no, I haven't spoken to him yet, but I will do. Well, there were three of us in this marriage. So it's a bit crowded. He's one of the greatest men I've ever met in my life. There is no good time to talk about um, Mr Epstein. Welcome to On Royal Watch, a special series hosted by the Know How podcast. We're doing a deep dive into the British royal family and their symbiotic but complicated relationship with the media. We talk to experts and journalists as we unpack the Windsor's biggest scandals and we ask the questions, what is the future between the press and the royals? How is that changing? And why do we care so much about a hereditary family in the 21st century? In our previous two episodes, we've looked at the allegations surrounding Prince Andrew and the fallout of Meghan and Harry's decision to leave the royal family. In this episode, we'll be talking to the royal expert, Professor Anna Whitelock, and looking at the past, present and future relationship the media has with the royal family, and in particular how the Queen is portrayed. How has that changed, and will the way the firm, as it's known, be covered in the same way when Prince Charles or Prince William is on the throne? To understand a little bit about that, we need to go back to 1936 and the Queen's uncle, Edward VIII, and his decision to abdicate. This is Windsor Castle. His Royal Highness, Prince Edward. I have for 25 years tried to serve. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. I mean, this is a, an amazing speech um, at the time. And what's really interesting is that actually a lot of people had no idea what was going on with Edward VIII and Mrs Simpson because there had been what was called the Great Silence. The newspapers in the UK had had this self-imposed omerta on mentioning anything that was going on in the king's private life, which is kind of almost impossible to imagine now. I mean, it would play out completely differently now if this took place. A lot of times people like to make the comparison of Harry and Meghan to this situation. You know, she, he married an American divorcee just like Edward VIII did. Just to imagine that it wasn't playing out in the UK press is incredible to think about. Well, people were getting cuttings from abroad, so it was in the US press. There's instances of um, people in this country being sent cuttings and having no idea what was going on. And in fact, interestingly enough, I found out that it was the Yorkshire Post who broke the silence in the end. They were the ones that actually first mentioned it. And then um, in the end, all the other UK papers followed suit. Speaking about the US covering the story, I did a Google search of the different headlines in the stories. And it was really interesting because they all had something in common. First of all, they really emphasized the fact that he was giving up on the biggest empire in the world. Like that was very, very heavily um, concentrated on. Also, marrying an American. I think it was a bit of a coup for the Americans that he was giving <laughs> all that up for an American. And what was very 
I thought kind of funny small detail is they kept referring to who became George the Sixth, so the the person that took after him, uh, as tall. But when I looked up his height, he was only five eight or five nine. So I wonder why they kept calling him tall. But anyway, it was interesting. I think maybe it was something about wanting the mystique of majesty there. I mean, and maybe sort of five five eight five nine wasn't so small at that maybe. point. But you know, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's a really weird thing. I mean, I think what is in- interesting is though it was a huge thing for the royal family and particularly for the queen mother, who was our present queen's mother, and. It really shook the foundations of the of the royal family. It still had ramifications going on through the generations. But it is true that by the time the Queen succeeded her father to the throne in 1952, things had moved on from that kind of gentleman's agreement and silence in her uncle's time. And that was seen most clearly, I think, in the decision to televise the coronation. The moment of the Queen's crowning is come. The person behind this idea, which was revolutionary at the time, was someone who was a relative outsider to the royal family, as Professor Anna Whitelock explains. It's important to sort of reflect on the fact that really from certainly the sort of beginning, middle of uh, the 20th century and the beginning of the Queen's reign, a deal was brokered essentially with the media and Prince Philip played an important role in that and of course let the cameras into the coronation for the first time. You know, he realised that there was a very necessary relationship between the monarchy and the media, and the the media was a way in which it made visible and articulated the purpose and the pursuits, really, of members of the royal family in the monarchy. And Prince Philip arguably went too far. It's kind of weird for us to think in uh, 2021, you know, back then, that... Prince Philip, who was seen as this like dramatic modernist and reformer. But the idea that um, Anna Whitelock is saying that Philip actually went too far. One of Philip's ideas was the Royal Family documentary, which was broadcast in 1969. And this was revolutionary. It showed them, you know, having a barbecue, watching TV. And there's an element that it was thought that actually this destroyed the mystique of the royal family. And certainly it seems that the Queen regretted giving the BBC this behind-the-scenes access. And she has actually been requested that it never be broadcast again. I mean, there's still such an enigma behind that family that I don't think they went too far. And I went through some of Prince Philip's old interviews because he actually did give interviews semi-regularly throughout the decades, both in in the UK and in the US and abroad. And he had such a funny relationship with the press because on one hand, yes, he when he was an interviewee, he was really great. Like he, he was very engaging, very interesting. But he would turn on the interviewer like this if they asked him a wrong question, if they asked it in a way that he didn't like. He was very willing and confident to correct them and put them in their place. And, and he's been on record many times talking about the media. And, and actually, the, the one quote I found in one of his interviews from 1984, he said, the media is a taboo subject because the media practically have no sense of humor about themselves. <laughs> Okay, that's I haven't heard that quote before. I mean, that's really uh, interesting um, because Philip 
was obviously um, castigated over the years for what his particular brand of um, humour was. But you see that kind of uh, very tendentious relationship between the media and the royal family that neither of them can survive without each other, but they don't quite understand each other in any way. Yeah, and I mean, you open the family up a little bit. Of course, there's going to be reporting on it. I think he was very frustrated over the years how that became more of a soap opera, as he called it. The argument has always been, by that documentary, he opened up the royals as human beings to be looked at for us to be interested in their lives. And therefore, the tabloids have always justified their intrusion into the royal family's private lives after that by saying, well, they did it first. And it seems like a bit of a contradiction because when he was asked, particularly by Barbara Walters, about, you know, what's the point of having a, a, a monarchy? And he said, well, instead of just one person ruling over a country, in this case, several countries, it, it's a family. So we're a family here. And he really thought of himself as part of that family. And so, yeah, if you're going to say that, that it's going to be reported on, you can't then say, oh, you know, look at them, they're reporting on our family. Well, yeah, you just said that you want to be in charge. I think the thing is, is we talk about the royal family, but obviously there is someone in the royal family who is kind of above this fray. Of course. And that's the queen herself. So the queen herself, however, continued to be treated with deep reverence, as Professor Whitelock explains. The queen represents the end of a certain type of monarch and monarchy really I mean that sort of stiff upper lip being seen but not particularly heard not giving interviews being kind of politically removed a reverence even just for the queen's body I mean if you remember newspaper headlines over the years where I think it was Paul Keating in Australia you know deigned to put his arm around the queen and you know it was big splash headlines over here and that really is you know a very old idea that the monarch's body was somehow you know sanctified it had been divinely touched in the coronation with the anointing and that you know you don't turn your back on the queen there's all of this kind of royal reverence around the body throughout the 1980s and 1990s as the younger members of the royal family attracted scandalous headlines with affairs and failed marriages the queen herself remained above criticism and even received sympathy after her so-called annus horribilis in 1992 following the fire at windsor castle and the breakdown of the wells's marriage but then Unthinkable only a few years earlier, she was the target of criticism in the aftermath of Diana's death. Instead of coming to London, she stayed at Balmoral and the flag did not fly at half-mast. With growing public anger, she then felt compelled to make a rare live broadcast the day before Diana's funeral. Since last Sunday's dreadful news, we have seen throughout Britain and around the world an overwhelming expression of sadness at Diana's death. We have all been trying in our different ways to cope. It is not easy to express a sense of loss, since the initial shock is often succeeded by a mixture of other feelings, disbelief, incomprehension, anger, and concern for those who remain. We have all felt those emotions in these last few days. Listening to that again, Lindsay, how significant do you think that moment was? Well, there was a few things going on. First of all, not just this country, not just the Commonwealth, but the entire world was mourning this very tragic event. And so for her to do that was probably a sign of 
of trying to relate to what the public was thinking and uh, feeling at the moment. I went back and I watched what she said about her own mother when her mother passed. And then also I went back to see what she said about Prince Philip since he's passed. She doesn't really say a lot. And she it, it is totally within her normal protocol not to talk a lot about the people who have died in her life. And so for her to go into such detail and to praise so much of Diana in that broadcast uh, was a break from what she would normally do. And I think it was to try to make up for the criticism and, and then also just try trying to cope with what was happening because the whole world descended on Buckingham Palace at that moment. It's kind of extraordinary looking back to see that and to think about what that week was like. I'm, I was a very young journalist at the time and so I actually covered Diana's funeral. My job was to sleep out in Kensington Gardens um, the night before so that I could be right at the beginning of the funeral procession. And the anger um, on the streets um, was palpable. The feeling of betrayal um, of Diana, you know, both well, both towards the royal family and also towards the media. It wasn't a great time to be out and about on the streets as a journalist. And it's, it's almost impossible to remember that now, just how visceral it felt and how the Queen, for once, was not seen as this monarch who was revered, but someone who was a major part of the problem. Her criticism about staying at Balmoral instead of coming immediately to London, I have to push back a little bit on that because Prince William even said later that she did it to stay with the grandsons. Whether that's true or not, that's how Prince William has perceived it, that she was protecting him and his brother from what was happening. I buy that. Well, I mean, she says in that speech, she's very clear, she talks as a grandmother. But I think that wasn't really communicated to the public until you know, sort of just before Diana's uh, funeral. And it certainly there was, a, there was a need for an outlet for this sort of anger and grieving for the sudden death of Diana, Princess of Wales. It was fascinating that usually the criticism would be of other members of the royal family, but actually Prince Charles didn't get as much because he had gone back to bring sort of Diana's body back to... Um, London, he had been seen to be grieving in a way, and the Queen had been just seen to be too remote. It must have been an incredible out-of-body experience for you to experience that. Oh, I mean, it sort of sends shivers down my spine uh, even now. At the beginning of the funeral procession, there was this amazing wail of grief that came from somewhere in the crowd, and it was absolutely electrifying. And it wasn't just actually on the funeral, it uh, itself, the day before when the Queen and Prince Philip came back to London, there were similar, very dramatic scenes, as Anna Whitelock tells us. If you were around at the time where the Queen returned to London with Prince Philip, and it was so she they'd driven to Buckingham Palace and they stopped outside the gates um, to look at the flowers. Yeah. And I remember that. What well, it was only a few seconds, but there was like literally deathly silence, and nobody quite knew whether there was going to be boos or applause. And as it was, there was a sort of sedate applause, and then it gathered, and it it felt like the nation kind of breathed a sigh of relief. Diana, Princess of Wales, had a huge effect on the way that royalty was reported. Not just the fact that she was seen as a fashion icon and that her love life was followed so avidly. She also worked closely with different reporters, which changed the royal beat. Do you think Mrs Parker Bowles was a factor 
in the breakdown of your marriage? Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. I suppose I just had to play, play that. Uh, it's such a well-remembered moment. But it's true that Dinah had worked closely with journalists such as Andrew Morton, who wrote Dinah Her True Story, Martin Bashir on Panorama and Richard Kay at the Daily Mail to get her point of view across. But that was very much using mainstream media reporters. Well, there is still a royal press pack, as we heard from Omid Scobie in the last episode. What's been interesting in the last few years is the fact that, led by Harry and Meghan, the younger royals have turned to curating their image by using social media. It's my 40th birthday, and I've got an idea. I know what it is. Really? My first guess is it another photo shoot under a tree where you're looking very peaceful. Peaceful under trees me every day. So that was a video that the Duchess of Sussex made um, for her 40th birthday. But this is just one in a long line of different ways of using social media. Of course, uh, Meghan, before she became a royal, was a you know avid user of social media. She had her own blog, uh, The Tig, which suddenly got closed down when she began to be in a serious relationship with Harry. And there hadn't really been anything you know, like that before, I guess. Yeah, I wonder what the Queen thinks of all that, how much she likes it. I mean, in a way, they have to know that it's what's going to keep them relevant. I mean, if the royal family's not on social media right now, what kind of relevancy do they have to the next generation? Well, it's certainly a way of reaching an audience and going beyond the mainstream media that we were talking about in the last episode. I think it certainly had an influence because it's not just Harry and Meghan that um, have used this. I mean, the, the Cambridges are also big users of social media. And I'm thinking of their 10th wedding anniversary um, video that they that they put out, which was actually made by someone who does the, I think, the Uber Eats and Tesco marketing. I don't know if you remember it, Lindsay. It was this very sort of soft focus, lovely roasting marshmallows running along the beach. I mean, it looked like a Bowdoin advert. It was all so beautifully shot. Um, but that's very far away from the, the very sort of formal interviews and walkabouts that we're used to seeing the royals doing. Well, they're becoming aspirational again because very few people, well, I guess maybe there are some, but not a lot of people want to become royals, but they do want to have an ideal family. And they're embodying the ideal family. Well, it's a really interesting one, though, that what is the ideal royal family? Because it, it is a kind of very middle, upper middle class, you know, Bowdoin Waitrose kind of vibe to what William and William and Kate were doing. I mean, I think, you know, sort of Harry and Meghan have a slightly different approach with sort of Archwell, which is much more about sort of global humanitarianism. But what is the royal family? Is this is it this kind of you know, sort of Bowdoin fantasy? Is it this sort of global humanitarian fantasy? You know, and how does that relate back to the reality? Certainly, Professor Whitelock um, thinks that there is an issue for the Sussexes in particular on how they use such media. I mean, they are definitely informed by the kind of Instagram approach. They set up their own website. They, you know, images of their house as if they were like the Kardashians or some other celebrity couple. Um, and I think, I mean, that's one of the other questions that is sort of around all of this is, you know, the differences between media, well, sorry, the differences um, between celebrity and royalty and how the media regards those. And I think, you know, Harry and Meghan have said they don't want to be royals anymore, which sort of means that do they fall into the category of celebrities? And 
So it, do they therefore get treated without the degree of respect and reverence? Do people expect more or less of them? How should the media treat them? I mean, and I think Harry and Meghan are going to struggle because, I mean, still at the moment, although they want to separate from the royal family, it seems to be all their interviews and so on are about their time within the royal family. Um, and they haven't really yet established a platform about something else. If you look back at Meghan Markle pre-Harry, she had a clear vision for herself. She was on Suits, of course, as an actress, but she was associated with UN Women and World Vision. She was focusing on the status of women and girls. She had the food blog, as you say, the TIG. It's very easy for me to see, as you've explained about uh, Meghan Markle, who has had you know 30-odd years of um, a life before she um, joined the royal family and, and a long-standing career. But what is there for Harry? How does how does he translate himself into this new role? Because we're interested in him because he's Diana's second son, because he's William's brother, because he has split with the royal family. How does he reinvent himself out of that? Thinking about it, though, is this was an impossible thing for them to do within the royal family, though, because they were trying to establish themselves and um, gain sort of publicity for causes they cared uh, cared about. But social media is very much a kind of individual thing. It's about promoting your own uh, personal brand. Um, but the thing is, with the royal family, the key brand in the end is is the queen. She is the person who is on the throne and whom we all sort of look up to. I think the reason why the Sussexes had you know, so, such problems and why they had to leave the royal family are manifold. But one thing is the fact that it all comes back to the Queen in the end. I think the problem for her was that she didn't either understand or want to accept that she had to be subsumed within the royal family. There could no longer be brand Meghan. Meghan can, you know, you can be as popular and accessible and, you know, engaging with the public as you like, but it's all got to be for the, for the purposes and within the auspices of the royal family and the monarchy. And you have to toe that line. And she either wasn't able to or didn't want to do that. Um, and so I think that really, you know, was problematic. You're watching BBC News. We have just received a statement from Buckingham Palace confirming that the Duke of Edinburgh has died. The statement says, it is with deep sorrow that Her Majesty the Queen has announced the death of her beloved husband, His Royal Highness, the Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. So this is the moment that the BBC reported the death of the Duke of Edinburgh earlier this year. You can hear the presenter getting quite emotional here, but one of the questions is whether the media are reflecting the feelings of the public. Particularly the BBC, as the, you know, the national broadcaster, has always been in this sort of relationship of, of essentially kind of reverence. But I think Prince Philip's funeral, or the death of Prince Philip, mm. actually showed that they had got that sort of wrong. And the, the blanket coverage on the BBC was widely criticised. And I just think it's amazing how we've got to this point now where, you know, the royal editors don't report the fact of that people are nonplussed or perhaps even hostile. You know, the equivalent almost is like a political editor who just shows you, you know, the government doing, you know, good things and everybody going, aren't they doing well? I think there is a reluctance amongst royal reporters 
you know, to talk about these difficult issues. And if it's difficult to talk about the death of Prince Philip, it seems even more difficult to talk about the fact that we have a monarch who is in her mid-90s and who may not be on the throne for very much longer. Yeah, if you live to 99, I mean, very few people that have lived in the history of the world live to 99. And so, I mean, you've lived a really great life. And of course, it's it's sad because he was he was a great figure. I read that he had done 22,000 engagements over the course. Mm-hmm. That's a lot. It's a lot of time in the public. And that's a lot of a lot of time that he sacrificed for that role. Where is the public at? Are they feeling emotional about it? I, I don't know. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, I feel slightly awkward talking about this. I yeah. feel like I'm being sort of disrespectful talking about um, the death of Prince Philip. And earlier this year, um, Operation London Bridge was leaked. That's the details of the Queen's funeral and what will happen, her lying in state, what Prince Charles will do. And there was a, a lot of resistance of, to reporting that and people talking about that because, again, it was seen as rather unseemly to be um, speculating on the the, the death of, um, of the monarch. But this is what journalists think, and it may be that they're slightly out of step with um, what the public are thinking. I'm, I'm not sure that there was that much sort of public grief for um, Philip himself in the same ways that the media expected there to be. So the fact is that we are on a threshold of change. Even at the moment, the Queen's role is changing. And so Barbados is uh, going to become a republic. And trying to, you know, talking to people there, there is a sort of blanket portrayal in the media that everybody thinks this is a good thing. Everybody thinks it's a good thing. Now, that may well, the majority may well think that. But then talking to people individually, there is, like here, a reverence for the Queen. Lindsay, this is an inevitable question, but I do have to to ask this. As another Commonwealth country, what's the situation in Canada? How is the Queen seen there? It's very interesting because I remember about 15, 20 years ago, there was a Liberal MP who talked about possibly Canada splitting from the Commonwealth. And since then, it's basically not been talked about at all. And if I think about the history of Canada, you know, we only became a country in 18... Well, it was a civilization before that, of course, <laughs> but it was... And I'll get into that in a second. But, you know, we only formed what we call Canada in 1867. The Queen became the Queen in 1952. That means she's almost been our sovereign for almost half of the the time that it's been a country. That's a long time to have that figure. I think that though Canada in recent years, we've had to reconcile our past, particularly with Indigenous people. And when we talk about the residential schools and the murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls and labeling that as a genocide, uh, we have a lot in our past to think about and to reconcile. And so do we still need a monarchy when we're trying to rewrite the wrongs of what have been going on, not just with indigenous people, but other people who have immigrated to Canada of uh, that are from non-white backgrounds? Uh, You know, you think particularly black people who, you know, were fleeing from the U.S. for slavery came to Canada. We're very proud that we didn't have formalized slavery, but it's not like we were treating black people wonderfully. And so we have that to think about. And I think having a monarch clashes with that. Having said that, 
the queen has been in for so long. She is a nice figure for us. I think Canadians are content to have her as the lead. When she passes away, will we feel that way about Charles? I don't think so. I think that's when things will change. Would Canadians feel differently about Prince William? I don't know. It it would be interesting. I I think, though, we will have conversations. Hmm. I think they will emerge. I think right now we don't bother, but I think we will. And if I want to separate... You will not separate or divorce or let the side down in any way. And if one day you expect to be king... I do. Then might I suggest you start to behave like one? I think one aspect we also need to address here is the portrayal of the royal family and the interest of the royal family in fictional media. That's huge at the moment. Um, so many different ones. Um, let's start with The Crown. Of course. I mean, Omid Scobie, we asked him, do they watch it? Here's what he had to say. Well, we know that the Queen was interested or she had watched the first season. I don't know beyond that. Certainly with the Cambridges, I'd heard from sources that they had checked out, at the very least, parts of every season, because how could you not? I had a conversation at Palace Briefing with Harry, and I remember asking him, it's around the time of The Crown, are you going to stay watching it, you know, when your story comes on? And he was like, absolutely not. But we've since heard through his chat with James Corden that he has watched it more recently. So, and, and, you know, even Sarah Ferguson said that she had put herself forward as a consultant for the show, despite being in it for all of about 10 seconds in the past season. But I think that shows you at the very least how important The Crown is. As much as people might want to dismiss it as this sort of work of fiction, yes, of course, the dialogue is from the minds of, of those writing the show, but the who, what, where, when, well, that's based on what's in the public domain. So how can we say it's not true? I found it really interesting the way the palace pushed back on the most recent season, of course, because it was the most damaging to Charles. It sort of brought back memories of a time when he was a, a very different man. And for the palace, it was then very easy to say, oh, well, it's all tosh, you know, it's all made up. But actually, a lot of that information was from Diana herself when she spoke to Andrew Morton. The writers may have filled the gaps with the dialogue, but the places and the happenings, that all happened. And so it is, it'll be very interesting to see the next season, because again, I think where season one and two were, and three even, were the greatest bits of PR for the palace. I think it really made the royals cool and exciting. You know, even the young, the older royals, Princess Anne, Princess Margaret, they found themselves new fan bases through that show. But as soon as we in, introduce the arc of Diana's journey, well, it then inter- reminds us of perhaps who we weren't so keen on within the fold too. And at a time when the reputation and popularity of Charles and Camilla is the most important for the institution, the crown may end up becoming perhaps an even bigger threat than anything Harry or Meghan might say. <laughs> Let's think about sort of how the Queen is portrayed, for, for starters, from you know, that young and naive girl, but in subsequent series as someone 
who is quite remote and quite buttoned up. I mean, do you think this is true to life? Well, it's interesting because my biggest criticism of The Crown, which I enjoy and I think it's an amazing series, but my biggest criticism of it is that they don't focus on the Queen enough in the last few seasons. I mean, they had this whole episode of Prince Philip watching the moon landing, which was, <laughs> what was that? That was just excruciating, watching him watching TV. And I kept thinking, well, why don't you focus more on the queen? But I think it goes back to this reverence uh, for her and just maybe feeling hesitant to delve too deeply. and Or maybe it's just we don't know. Maybe she's an enigma. I don't know why they wouldn't spend that time on the queen rather than Prince Philip. I remember the Prince Philip moon landing as well. I mean, that was a very bizarre um, episode to be included. Um, I presume it was trying to say something about changing masculinity in the 1960s and his role. But there is a soap opera element to it. I mean, it's a glossy Netflix uh, production, you know, gazillions spent on it. But it is a soap opera. I mean, if we look at the last series, you know, inevitably, what was the focus on? On, you know, Charles and Diana. And that was a soap opera in itself when it was when it was happening, and it it lent itself to the drama of a you know a continuing drama series. I mean, what what did you think about their portrayal, Lindsay? Well, I think it digs up the old feelings again, and I think there's been a lot of different shows that have come out recently. You think about Kristen Stewart's new movie about Diana. There was even a musical <laughs> about Diana. Oh my goodness! Hello, I'm Diana. Choose happiness, I choose a fresh new start I choose whatever lies ahead I've never seen anything quite like it. It was, I watched it, it was, and I am a musical fan, I really am. I don't know what people were thinking. I don't know how they thought it could translate into a musical. I don't know. But if you think about what The Crown did, I mean, the way they cast those characters, you can really willingly suspend your disbelief in moments because the actors look so true to life, which I think is difficult to do because, you know, a lot of these people are still living or, or at least we have them very firmly in our imagination. I think what's interesting here is that as the series have progressed, we're talking about people who are, who are still living. And I think that has been where some of the uneasiness, some of the criticism around the crown has been, is that because some of it appears to be so so accurate, where is the line of fiction drawn? You know, did the Queen and Charles have the conversations that they uh, you know appear to have in in the crown? Did did Charles and Diana um, have? And I think the maybe the the fascination um, of the royal family watching it, but also what they may be slightly worried about is, do we now see um, Charles not as he is, but how he was portrayed? And certainly the series was very sympathetic towards um, Diana, Princess of Wales. Was there enough nuance in the way that sort of very complex relationship um, broke down? You know, I, I would sort of, suggest that Diana won the PR war in The Crown as she tended to do in real life as well. And I think uh, the Queen, what was really interesting at the end, the very one of the last scenes, if not the last scene, was basically the Queen played the role of the audience in that she had a very firm talking off to to Charles, just saying like, get with it. step up to your duty stop doing what you're doing and be better and it was interesting to see her being in the position of what a lot of people in the audience were thinking in that moment we were talking about 
the aftermath of um, the death of Diana, Princess of Wales, earlier. And actually, that makes me think about the Queen, the the film. That was fascinating because I, I think certainly if you watch that, it was obviously very carefully researched how the week um, after Diana's death played out and the role that um, Tony Blair and the Labour government played in what happened um, and how the Queen changed her approach. But again, it's interesting watch, watching it and thinking, you know, do we now take sort of the Queen, the film as sort of gospel of what happened in that week? or And is that kind of um, altering how we see the Queen herself? I think it certainly does, especially for international audiences, because if you talk to the average person outside of the UK, I think a lot of how they perceive the royal family is through movies like The Queen, through The Crown, and so forth. So I think it does have an impact. And actually, overall, it makes them more interesting. The Kristen Stewart film has this kind of air of you know, fairness about it. I mean, they, they've done something that is trying to get away from the very, you know, I think it's trying to get away from the crown in, in a way by setting it over a few days, you know, calling it Spencer, making clear that it's all about her. And I think she sees ghosts at, uh, at one point in it. But, um, you know, I'll be interested to see how that does, whether people are willing to go away from that, you know, that kind of that crown, the queen style, very similitude um, to a more fantastical and dramatic style. I mean, I've, I've only seen the, tra- the trailer, but I do really want to see the whole thing having seen it. I will watch it, even though it's just another, you know, movie about Princess Diana. I still will watch it. I find it intriguing. But still, when I watched the trailer, when I looked at the different moments, I thought, oh, they did that on the crown. They did that on the crown. They did that on the crown. Yeah, yeah. So maybe uh, it won't be as far away as um, I was saying. But I think I suppose the point is that they're not trying. They're trying to reframe it as this is Diana's story. We're calling it Spencer. We're trying to portray a woman beyond her royal family status. But the thing is with Diana, you can't do that, really, because that's why we're interested in her. Well, yeah. And she got married so young. But it was <laughs> it was a huge part of her adult formation is that part. And so you can't really separate it. I wonder why there hasn't been more pushback, I guess because it hasn't been released, but for casting an American and not a British actress. I, th- I think Kristen Stewart is such a big star that actually when you usually get these um, portrayals of the royals, they're usually relative un- unknowns. You know, apart from the uh, sort of um, the Queen and Prince Philip, in, in the crown, a lot of the younger roy- royals were often um, cast as relatively up-and-coming actors, so you didn't have that idea of who they were in, in other roles. And so I think the, f- the fascination with Spencer is that someone like Kristen Stewart, who is such a huge Hollywood star, and her background with Twilight and everything like that brings a certain kind of gothic charm right. to it. As everyone albeit most of us silently, reflect on the fact that in the next few years it's likely there will be a new monarch on the throne. It's likely that any coronation with Prince Charles will be different in feeling, even if not in substance to the Queen's, and that coverage day-to-day will also change. Perhaps we should hear from a historian on what the wider perspective is for both media and monarch. I think this is the big question. And, I mean, I was, you know, talking to people, sort of royal editors and stuff. I mean, 
I've sort of said to them and that in a way, I think the monarchy has arguably modernised more than the media in the last 50 years. You know, people sort of go, oh, the monarchy needs to, you know, join that reflect the times. But actually, in lots of ways, I think it has. But the media are still reporting a kind of one narrative, one perspective on the royals. And it's them that need to modernise and they need to be able to say, you know, for some people this is important, for other people it isn't. This was criticised. This is not the monarchy doesn't sort of represent the nation per se. And for many people, it is, you know, simply a kind of anathema to what they would regard as the best of Britain and so on. You've been listening to The Know How, the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts. It was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova. For more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.